This is Monstras. everyone and welcome to another episode of Monstras. My name is Brenda. Hi. Salguero. I'm sorry, I didn't know you were going to say your last name. Hi everyone, I'm Orquidea Morales. <laughs> Every time you do it, I just, I don't know what's coming and I forget. We haven't recorded in so long. I know. It's been a while. It's been pretty crazy changes around here. I'm now living with my parents temporarily to until I move back to the Bay or actually not even the Bay. I'm trying to move to Sacramento. Nice. That's cool. Yeah. And you're in a different area too. Yeah. I'm in Texas. So I'm I'm in my parents' house too. Wow. We're, so both, we're, both... we're both in our, I'm in my childhood bedroom. Are you in your childhood bedroom? No, I don't. I didn't grow up in this house. So oh, okay. no, this isn't a childhood bedroom, but it is a bedroom that my parents decorated and like got ready for me. They were really mm. sweet. That's good. Yeah, so it's been crazy busy living, you know, moving from Northern California to Southern California, putting all my stuff in storage, you know, my roommate bought a house, so that's kind of what prompted me to get out of there and also start to look for my own property. So we'll see as a single woman. (laughs) Look at you adulting all hard. I know. Well, right now, well, is adulting really living in my parents' house? I think for our generation, yes. (laughs) That's true, actually. Good point. Oh, my gosh. So, yeah. So, it's been crazy, and that's why we haven't been recording recently. So, why don't we get started and dive into this episode? So, what are we talking about? Sounds good. So, in today's episode, we're going to be talking about a worldwide icon. We're going to be talking about Madonna. A Madonna, not the Madonna. <laughs> this podcast changed themes. Uh, I know. Just FYI, everyone, we're talking about now the singer Madonna. <laughs> yeah, the whole podcast is going to be devoted to her from now on, not just this episode. <laughs> no, we're going to be talking about uh, Virgin Mary. So for me, she was like constantly there growing up. Like I just remember seeing pictures of her and like statuettes and like all the candles. Did you grow up with her too, Brenda? I did not. Kind of, yes, but also no. Um, only mostly in the periphery. So, And as an extension of Mexican culture, I knew of her. I saw her iconography everywhere because I grew up in majority Mexican neighborhoods. And I wasn't really taught about her or really any Catholic theology. My parents were really bad Catholics, quite honestly. <laughs> like They taught me nothing. So a lot of this information was both new but also semi-familiar to me. And I'm super, super excited to share the information that we kind of uncovered with all of you today. Because even if you're familiar with La Virgen, I guarantee you, you're going to learn something new. Yeah. And and doing the research for this episode, there was so much that we found out. So for today, we're going to be focusing on a few uh, interesting historical and contemporary stories about La Virgen. We're going to focus mostly on the Virgen de Guadalupe and her relationship to Mexico and Mexicans uh, and Mexican-Americans. However, there's so much to be said about her. As we were working on this, we were like, we can do another episode on this and that. So there will be future Virgen episodes uh, for sure. 
Um, yes. But let's start there. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the history of the Virgin Mary? Yes. So a little bit of the history of the Virgin Mary. This this part was very interesting to me. I, I called it the Battle of the Marys. I love your titles. <laughs> It's really, it's really, it's really crazy because so around the time the Americas were being colonized, the image of the Virgen was actually getting popularity in Europe. So by the late Middle Ages, she had gained a significant following. And this is something that I found out that was so fascinating. So the name Guadalupe actually originates from Europe, even though it sounds Spanish, right? Yeah. It is actually a hybrid word. And it comes from the word guadal, which is in which is Arab for either river or valley, and then lupus, which is Latin for wolf. So it directly translates her name directly translates to wolf river or wolf valley. That's fascinating. I love the. I mean, we don't even talk about that in this episode, but in another episode, we have to talk about her conne- connection to wolves. Is she a werewolf? Yeah, it's crazy. Like, I, I didn't really understand where the wolf part came from, but I do understand where the guadal part came from. So, according to medieval legend, the Spanish Guadalupe first appeared to a shepherd in statue form. Whoa. So, again, you have someone kind of, and at, we'll examine the story of how Guadalupe came to Mexico and how she gained popularity there, but there's, there's commonalities here already. So... Apparently, years before, Luke the Evangelist carved an oak statue of the Virgin Mary, which was then gifted to the Archbishop of Seville. When the Moors invaded Seville, a group of priests buried the statue by the Guadalupe River in Extremadura, is what it's called, which was then discovered by the shepherd. So, on and on that spot, the Guadalupe Monastery was actually erected. And this is the figure that later crossed an ocean. Which is That makes sense. Yeah. Which is fascinating. So she was buried by a river. The statue particular statue was buried by a river. And so I think that's how they kind of adopted that word. Okay. But I mean if the river was already called Guadalupe or was it called Guadalupe after the discovery? I don't know. I think it was called I think it was maybe called after the river. So Guadalupe River in Extremadura, which was the Extremadura is also, I'm not 100% sure on the origins of that, but in reading about what Christopher Columbus, when he came over to the Americas, said, was he dedicated his discovery, or I think one of the, air quotes, discovery, to Guadalupe, Santa Guadalupe, or something, something in Extremadura. Interesting. So it's very fascinating. So after she crossed over, in Mexico, dozens of Marian cults, cults sprouted. But the one that rose to the tippity top <laughs> was, of course, La Virgen de Guadalupe. In this article that I found, a fascinating article called Beyond Guadalupe by Brian R. Larkin, they examined, so in this study that he, he led, I guess he examined over uh, 1,700 wills and testaments written in Mexico City between the years 1693 and 1813. Wills are important primary sources as people devoted their earthly possessions to the church. And in their wills, they wrote explicitly who these worldly possessions were dedicated to. So usually they would pick a particular figure. 
Lavirgen, from the study of wills, did not actually rise in popularity in Mexico City until at least 1737, where we see her consistently pop up in people's wills. Mm -hmm. So she didn't start out like a superstar. (laughs) She had to work her way up to getting all the money from people. (laughs) She had to work her way up to fame, okay? (laughs) But I, I didn't know. I mean, I guess I feel like I should have known that you could donate your money to the church. I think I knew that part, but that you could dedicate it to specific saint or virgin is really fascinating. Yeah. And so people, so, and unfortunately, these wills did not include indigenous populations. So we were kind of in the dark about that because those populations rarely had wills. So it's really the kind of- I mean, they were treated as slaves, so they didn't have a lot to give. Exactly. So it's unfortunate that we don't have any insight into their lives during this time period. Mm-hmm. So yeah. So one of the things that I wanted to examine also is the popularity of all these Marian figures, right? So this is why it's called Battle of the Marys. I didn't realize there were so many Marys. Yeah. So many. Okay. So before La Virgen, the Lady of Sorrows or the version of Mary that is cradling Jesus at the foot of the cross was very popular in Mexico. Mexico. So I like calling her La Chiona Mary. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh my God, because she's, she's supposed to, so her uh, picture, if you go look her up, most of her statues have her pierced with arrows, seven arrows, and they're all representing the sorrows of Jesus. Yeah. Or the things that happened, which culminates obviously in his death on the cross. So she was really popular actually during the Black Death in Europe. That makes sense. Like mourning. Yeah. Yeah. So people people were into some dark shit at the time. So <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, same. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyways, this particular Mary was super popular up until the 19th century when La Virgen's popularity really took off. So, also another side note about another version, another popular version of Mary, was the Lady of Immaculate Conception. So, at the time, or around this time-ish, there was a whole argument within the church about whether or not Mary was actually free of original sin from basically conception. Mm. Thomas Aquinas was someone who did not like this and argued that Mary was actually just a normal human woman until she gave birth to Christ and was cleansed of sin then. However, they ignored his ass. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, nah, we're not going to go with that. And the pap- papacy actually eventually adopted this belief and this version of Mary became very popular in Mexico also. So the version where she's free of sin? Always yes. or yes, the Lady of Immaculate Conception is essentially the version, the Virgin Mary who was free of of uh, sin from conception. Wow, I never thought of that difference. Like I've always found like the number of Marys confusing too, because you have the Virgin Mary, and then you also have Mary Magdalene, who was the prostitute that Jesus saved. Yeah, her? so we need to do an episode on her too. But there's just so many Marys, and like we have Virgin Mary, Virgin de Guadalupe, the uh, Immaculate Conception. My mom used to tell me that my middle name, Vianney, comes from a virgin. But every time I look it up, nothing comes up. So she lied to me, which <laughs> is fine. She made it up. She just yeah. made it up. Yeah. 
<laughs> but I think it's it's super cool in a way because it's very similar to the idea of the 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 Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the idea is that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are three, but at the same time one. So even though they have different names um, and sometimes look different, they are one. It's the same with the the virgins. Like the they're they're different depending on geography, depending on which stage of their life they're at. Like when it comes to mourning and stuff. But at the end of the day, they're all the mother of Jesus, which is how they're holy. Yes, it's really fascinating that they're taking different aspects of her life and creating these whole belief systems and cults around her. And I don't understand what attracts people. I mean, I guess just like the Lady of Sorrows was very attracted to the people during the Black Death. It's just these Marys attract certain followings during certain times that reflect that time period. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, so the the myth of the Virgin Mary is obviously rooted in the Bible and the birth of Jesus, right? So the story of goes that Mary and Joseph were married, but hadn't had sex for some reason. So she was the vir- a virgin. Nobody nobody believes that, right? Do you believe? That? I don't think she was a virgin in real life. If she existed in the first place, I just don't believe that a married couple would not would abstain for some reason. Yeah, and the. I think she had to be married too, which is really interesting, right? Because otherwise, she would Jesus would be like a bastard child, even if he had God as his father. If she yeah, hadn't been married, yeah, that's true. So, um, I mean, I like the theory that maybe she was raped, and not that I like rape, but that I hold weight. <laughs> I'd like to think that that's probably closer to the truth. Yeah. So you don't believe like the Bible that the Holy Ghost came down and told her. You were going to give birth to the son of God here and then lights glow and she's pregnant. Yeah, I have a hard time believing that. (laughs) What if aliens came down and impregnated her? (gasps) Alien Jesus? Yeah, what if the Holy Ghost was an alien? Oh, that'd be so cool. (laughs) That would be way more believable to me. I I would ascribe to that. Then I'd be like, hell yeah, I'm going to be religious now. Yeah. I don't know what to do with that. (laughs) I'm down. I'm down for alien Jesus. Anyway, so I wanted to get back to some more history of La Virgen in Mexico. So La Virgen de Guadalupe uh, has become the patron saint of Mexico. So in in the book Performing Piety, Elaine Pena writes about the indigenous and conquest history of Tepeyac, the site that gave birth to Mexico's love for Guadalupe. She writes, the hill of Tepeyac's geographic position guaranteed its political and economic importance through the pre-Hispanic and colonial epochs. Located at the northern point of the Calzada de Tepeyac, operated as an important entryway into the city, not only for trade, but also for high-ranking religious people, groups, and civil figures arriving from the Iberian Peninsula. The site was already a place of worship and pilgrimage for the indigenous people, which was actually centered around the deity uh, Tonatzin, who was an earth and fertility goddess, also known as Our Lady Mother. Dun, dun, dun. Mm. So the foundations of the cult of Guadalupe were already there. It just needed some group to swoop in and appropriate the location. <laughs> You don't really love the magic of the Virgin. Like, you've never watched um, 
La Rosa de Guadalupe, and it shows. Let me tell you. <laughs> I truly, I truly am just so and like not religious at all, yeah. but I'm fascinated by the origins of things and the history of things and how they came to be. So that's the part that fascinates me always. Yeah, and yeah, I, I'm always like, there's a reason for everything. <laughs> I mean, and it is really fascinating that there was this and it makes sense i feel like every culture has this worship or this affinity for like a mother figure right there's so many deities that are like that around the world so it makes sense that the spanish brought with them the worship of a mother figure right they were traveling to a new place and things like that so many of the spanish that came many of the important figures from spain that came worshiped the virgen de guadalupe of extremadura as you were saying cortes himself worshiped her on the hill of Tepeyac. So the, the hill of Tepeyac was important because of its location and as a site of power and economic trade, but it became even more of a religious site when the Spanish started to worship there. So the indigenous people worshiped there and then the Spanish worshiped there. And they both were worshiping mother deities, just different ones. Yeah. And who was right? Who was right? I mean, obviously, we will find out. Let me tell you who was right. Oh. So <laughs> as all Mexicans know, Unless they're not good Mexicans. Uh, <laughs> Tepeyac the, the is also the site where Juan Diego, an indigenous ma man, saw the Virgin between December 9th and December 12th in 1521. So Juan Diego claims that on December 9th, he was walking towards Tepeyac when he heard a beautiful voice call out to him and, and call his name and told him to climb the hill. So he climbed the hill of Tepeyac. And there, according to Peña and other scholars and historians, Juan Diego saw a Nahuatl-speaking young woman with long black hair that looked mestiza. So they described her as neither indigenous nor Spanish, but both. Oh. Yeah. And the fact that she was speaking now is really cool. So, yeah. Yeah. So she told him, build a temple in my honor right here. Right here. So Juan Diego was like, oh shit, that's pretty cool. I'm going to go down. And I'm, <laughs> I'm I'm really lucky. Oh crap! This yeah. beautiful woman told me to do something. I'm, gonna I'm totally do gonna do it. I would do it. So Juan, so so Juan Diego goes down, and he tells Fray Juan that Juan de Sumarraga, who was the first Archbishop of Mexico City, and of course this guy was like, "No, what the hell are you talking about?" Yeah, of course. Yeah, and sent him away. So. Juan Diego went back to Tepeyac and told the Virgin, nobody believed me. I'm not good enough. Find somebody else to, to share this message with that will be believed. And the Virgin was like, just be brave. Just try again. So he went again to, and this guy again was like, nah, man, we're not building that temple. Go away. So then he went up a third time and told La Virgen. And La Virgen was like, okay, come back tomorrow. And I'll give you a sign that you can take down with you. Juan Diego doesn't go back the next day because he had some family stuff to deal with. <laughs> Is what He's the like, article like I, the I can't said. deal with that woman on the hill. I yeah. got to get some stuff done. I think like his uncle was sick or something like that. That was like a real thing so he goes he goes back up on the 12th which is important because this is when mexico celebrates uh the day of the virgen december 12th so he goes back up on december 12th and he has like a month like an apron almost let me know yeah like it goes over his head right like yeah like a like a, a poncho and it has a has another name for it like it has, it's like a native wardrobe or 
coding like piece. Tam, of, it was like Tommy something, Tamil or Tamil there. Yeah. I don't remember exactly what it was called. So he's wearing that and she she fills it with roses. Like the roses appear on the hill of the Bayag, which is super rare because they're not very common in that area. And it's it's the dead of winter. It's December 12th. And in Mexico City, it gets really cold. It, sometimes it snows. So he fills it up with roses. He folds it up. So he goes back to Fray Juan de Sumagar, Sumarraga. And then he opens up, like he lets it fall. And the roses fall out. And after they fall out, they look at his, at the fabric and his tilma. That's what it's called. Yes, tilma. So he shows the tilma. And on it, there's an imprint of the Virgin Mary. And that's how they know it's a miracle, that he's telling the truth. And that's why they build the shrine to the Virgin on the hill of Tepeyac. And if you go to the Basilica, so if you go to the, the church that they built there, you still find that shroud there with her image. Wow, I want to go see the shroud. It's pretty amazing. You can't tell it's her. Don't tell nobody I said that. I'm recording a <laughs> podcast. <laughs> it was just a very weird stain that Juan Diego had when he Honestly, was cooking. he was or- eating some, I don't know, he was drinking some hot chocolate with something in it and it just spilled. And it's like when people say they see Jesus on toast, like it looks like a weird outline. That's what it looks like. Oh, so it's not really clear. This is the thing. I don't, like, if you're a god or a goddess or something mm-hmm. and you actually ex- want people to worship you and you exist, why wouldn't you want to have a clear sign that you exist? Because this is good enough. Oh, God. Obviously. The bare minimum. The bare minimum is good enough. We all want to be a mediocre white man, even Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Even, even the Virgin Mary wants to be a mediocre white man. Come on now. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, actually, it gets me into my next segment <laughs> where I say that this this story is actually highly disputed dun, for dun, many dun. reasons. I still do dun, 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 sorry. Dun. Is this actually a true story that happened? Yes. So I won't go into a super deep dive on it. But I want to touch on the veracity of the story. So in an article called The Image of a Miracle, The Virgen de Guadalupe and the Context of of the Apparitions by Mina Garcia Surmali, she states that Sumaraga, 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 she states that Sumaraga was a meticulous record keeper. And yet in none of his writings does he mention the apparition to Juan Diego. Very suspicious. Maybe somebody tore those notes out. <laughs> and ate them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so the second thing is that the priests, this is really interesting, that at the time, the priests, there was a lot of talk that there was there was a lot of fear that Christian idols were not fully supplanting indigenous deities. They were merely masking a continued worship of said deities. So... This could be another topic for another episode, but essentially a lot of the saints in Catholic in Catholic culture and mythology and all that stuff match indigenous deities because they were supposed to be, you know, one for one. Like, oh, this deity is similar to this deity. It was the same thing that the Greeks did or the Romans did with the with Greek gods. Yeah, and we can we can talk about it too in relationship. Okay, again for other episodes. Y'all can wait on this. But yes. like in Santeria, the relationship between Santa Barbara and Chango is very is similar. Like it's like this process of conversation. Yes. And so they were 
afraid that it was just a mask, that they were worshiping the same deities and they wanted basically absolute control. So they, so they, in order to gain that absolute control, the theory is they purposely chose an indigenous person and made up a story around this indigenous person for her to appear to him. So it was credible. It was a credible story for other indigenous people. Mm-hmm. And so I bring this up because we can see here that La Virgen is simply a tool of colonization. And the story, if it wasn't true, was created in order to convince indigenous people who were resistant to Christianity. No. I could I mean I can see that and I totally agree that she was a tool for colonization. Like historically that's the way it works, right? They kill the people and then they kill the culture. Yes. But but I think at the end of the day the Virgen has become a patron saint of Mexico and particularly of the working class and the poor. So I think we can acknowledge that history and like that process of colonization and the way it hurts and continues to hurt indigenous communities while at the same time talking about the power that the image has and like how people feel when they have nothing else to turn to, they turn to her. So, and and they're strengthened by her. So, I mean, people still do pilgrimages to the Basilica in Mexico City from all over the world to ask her for help. And there's images with people that are, you know, on their knees all the way, all that sort of stuff. So those pilgrimages are an important part of Mexican and Mexican-American identity. Yes. And I think the other thing that you mentioned, and I don't know, do you mention it in Paris later about her being one of the three Black Madonnas? Hmm. So, you know, you have this person who looks like the population. She was Mestiza. Yeah. She was this. She was already a syncretic figure, and so that's also interesting. So I don't think. Obviously, I'm not advocating that we cancel La Virgen. <laughs> Good, <laughs> because to counter my this other that argument that it was <laughs> fake, there is another article that actually does state that the story uh, is getting given legitimacy after the reemergence of this particular document called the Escalada Codex. It's not an actual codex. It's really just a one-page parchment. Mm -hmm. And it is the oldest depiction of the story of Juan Diego. And we'll share the image on Instagram, but it's a really fascinating image. Again, some people think that it was his death certificate, Juan Diego's death certificate, but it's fascinating. It's basically a counter to the argument that the story isn't true. Yeah. And I think, so. I mean, we know when it comes to myth and folklore, part of it is true, part of it isn't. And we're interested in it because shit ton of people still believe in it. <laughs> yeah. And it's it's fascinating to know. And I love people, I love scholars arguing, theologians, be they theologians or other, you know, scholars. I just love watching the back and forth in very <laughs> polite manner and just be like, well, <laughs> Actually, <laughs> actually, and it's like, oh God, but I love it. Yeah, and it's super interesting to see her, not only like her history or the way she developed in Mexico, but then how she came to the U.S. Like Mexican and Mexican Americans brought her to the U.S., and she's really an important part of the Chicano movement. So, like in his book of Open Graves and the exhibition State of Exception, Jason De Leon talks about how in his archaeological exploration of the U.S.-Mexico border. One of the types of objects that they found, because they found like shoes and water bottles and backpacks, 
but they also found religious paraphernalia. So rosaries, the small stamps of saints or Virgin Mary. So religious paraphernalia was present quite a bit. And I think the Virgin of Guadalupe is a symbol for those that have no hope or are kind of at the end of their rope. So the idea is that she's this intermediary, right? As the mother of Jesus, she'll tell Jesus to help you out. Like she'll (laughs) intercede and speak to God on our behalf to help our dreams and wishes come true. That's why a lot of people pray to her, right? They feel like she's kinder. Is that the the same pictures we saw when we were in in the Smithsonian Latino Center? Remember when we they there was a slideshow and it was pictures mm-hmm. of people's possessions at the border? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, because I remember I remember that. It was very it was very, very that was a tough day. Yeah. To it's, see those possessions. It's intense. And yeah, like it's and, and that's why like it's so fascinating to to kind of read about this and think about this, right? Like of all the things they can carry, they choose to carry this. And it doesn't see at the end of the day, it's still something they're carrying with them, right? Like it, yes. it still adds weight. It's still but it also is that reassurance. So she the Virgin has become such a part of US cultural landscape, even before the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. So even before the US was the US and Mexico was the Mexico we know now. It was like, it was still through this process of conquest and colonization that she was brought and maintained in the U.S. And now she's super big. So we're going to fast forward a bit because obviously we don't have a lot of time to talk about that. But we're going to focus on her in the 60s. So first we'll talk a little bit, you'll talk a little bit about the UFW and UFW organizers, uh, particularly Cesar Chavez. And then I think I'll talk a little bit about how Chicana artists have used her image. So you want to talk yeah, about Yeah, definitely. Chavez? And I think, so one thing that I did want to just intercede, we, I wanted to throw this in here a little really quickly, but wasn't Guadalupe really shot up to fame during the Mexico Re- Mexican Revolution? I think it was, right? She was, she yeah. became much more famous then, if we're thinking of a, of a kind of a timeline. But we won't, we don't even have time to go into that because it's just, again, it's, there's so much. Yeah. So let me dive into Cesar Chavez and how he used her image. So Chavez was a labor organizer born in 1927. So he employed non-violent means to bring attention to the plight of farm workers. So together with Dolores Huerta and a Filipino organizers, Larry Itileon and Philip Vera Cruz, Chavez founded the United Farmers, Farm Workers of America, or the UFW. As a labor leader, Chavez led marches, called for boycotts, and went on several hunger strikes. In their marches, the UFW usually used a banner with the image of La Virgen de Guadalupe on it. And we will definitely post pictures of that on social media. There were multiple reasons for this icon. So in his article, The Spiritual Praxis of Cesar Chavez, Roberto Chao Romero explains that Chavez fused popular Mexican religious symbols and practices such as La Virgen de Guadalupe, peregrinación, pilgrimage, and fasting with Catholic social teaching, leading to the first successful unionization of farm workers in the United States history. So, in 1966, the UFW did a 250-mile, 20-day march from Delano uh, to Sacramento, which I can tell you already sounds long. Yeah. And I, I can't remember what month it was, but I imagine it was hot. It, it yeah, it was, it was in both places are hot. I'm pretty, yeah. sh- I'm pretty sure Sacramento is very hot. 
excuse me. So the pilgrimage was marked by the presence of La Virgen de Guadalupe on banners. Again, this was because of the spirituality of Chavez and other members of the UFW and people in the march. But it was also a recognizable symbol of peace and religion that those outside of the organization, aka like white people, could see. Like we come in peace. Like this is, yeah. this is a peaceful thing. So we're not a threat, essentially, right? This was a tool to get the sympathy for them to get sympathy for the movement from people across the US. And so people couldn't call the marchers troublemakers, communists, or unruly. So by using the Virgin, the marchers were saying, We are here in peace and we are good people, so help us recognize our cause. That's so fascinating. It, it's so smart and so strategic. And it's it's weird to say that when it comes to religion, but they use the tools available to them, right? And if you want people to, to care about you and your cause, it makes sense to, to use these symbols that they'll recognize so without even words. They see the Virgin, they're like, oh, these people are someone I can identify with, someone that's peaceful. Maybe we should listen to them and what they're actually fighting for. And and it worked. I mean, they did a bunch of other stuff that made it work, but this this was part of it. Yes. And I, I think the conflating pilgrimage with, you know, La Virgen and all that stuff, it, it you know, having having that symbol and that banner was a shield. Yeah. And and then walking was yet another layer of symbolism of like obviously like as we mentioned, it it invokes pilgrimage, the idea of pilgrimage. Yeah. So, and the, the idea the idea of the pilgrimage, and in the article that you mentioned, Chavez, I think, talks about it, or, or they talk about it. I can't remember if it was like a direct quote from him. But the idea was that the, the idea of pilgrimages in general is that you're doing almost like a cleanse, so that when you get somewhere, you deserve what you're asking for, right? So if I do a pilgrimage to the Basilica to see the Virgin, then the pilgrimage should be difficult, because that way... I'm kind of cleansing myself of my sins and showing my devotion. So when I ask for whatever, for health, let's say, or for equal rights, then it's something that I deserve, that I worked for through this sacrifice. So that's part of the pilgrimage too. That is interesting. That is fascinating. Super fascinating. So, yeah. yeah. Well, let's dive into some Chicana feminists. Yeah. So this is when I first started thinking the Virgin was cool. Which is weird to say, but when I was uh, I was reading more about Chicana feminism and like their work, the Virgin seemed to be a constant symbol that they kept re- rethinking and remapping, and I wasn't sure why because the Virgin for me was always a symbol of repression and power. Right, this is how women should be. Gloria Saldua writes that Chicanas are seen as are either virgins or whores. Right, so either you're either a perfect mother, wife, whatever, or you're a whore. There's little in between so we exist within this dichotomy of which la virgen is the per- the symbol of perfect womanhood right she's again mother wife woman the virgin of guadalupe represents the patriarchal ideal of femininity and is hence promoted as a role model for women and it's an impossible ideal right because yes. if you're going to be a mother how the hell are you going to be a virgin too <laughs> and how are you like you know, did, was your conception free of sin? Like <laughs> Exactly. So so then Chicanas, in the Chicano movement and like the nationalistic building of it, Chicanas felt that they were being asked to live up to the standard and they were like, fuck this shit. 
right? So she she became she she became a tool to say this is a ridiculous standard. We're gonna turn her into a feminist symbol, right? We're gonna we're gonna flip her. So Brenda, why do you think Chicanas have repurposed her? It's definitely to me kind of a badass move <laughs> on their part. It's similar to what Chavez did, but it's definitely a sign of defiance to me. So like the word bitch or slut or or something that you that is negative, they you know you're taking it and you're reappropriating it and giving it a completely different meaning. So they seek to so these in doing this they seek to actually deconstruct the virgin whore dichotomy by rewriting the mythic figures, right? So through a revision of existing myths, Chicana writers are actually able to create a feminist mythology that is rooted in cultural tradition, but simultaneously serves as an act of resistance to the dominant discourse. So it's a big fuck you to the man. Yeah, <laughs> but without erasing the culture completely, right? And I think Ansaldoa does such a great job of talking about that. Like, we have to be able to get rid of the stuff that is bad for us, but that doesn't mean, you know, what is it? Throw the baby out with the bathwater sort yeah. of situation. Exactly. We're not canceling La Virgen. Yeah. We're taking what we like and throwing the rest out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is what you do, what humans do all the time with anything. Yeah. Right? So La Virgen was used as a symbol for the Chicana movement and for feminism together. It was a symbol of intersectionality and Chicanas gave her and Chicanas gave her, you know, movement. So, for example, in the piece La Virgen de Guadalupe, Defendiendo los Derechos de los Chicanos by Esther Hernandez from 1975, the Virgin, the Virgen is like kicking ass. Like she's like, boom, boom, boom. <laughs> like literally or like not? <laughs> literally. 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 So she is doing a kick and she's literally fighting for the rights of Chicanos, which is basically it's a superhero. Yeah, exactly. So that's fascinating. So in interviews with Hernandez, she has talked about this piece and her inspiration. So I wanted to kind of like include these two quotes. So about the image, Hernandez states, when my grandmother died, the funeral parlor gave us a card with the Virgen de Guadalupe on the cover. I remember thinking, this isn't my grandmother. My grandmother had 16 kids, worked years in the fields and had a hard but beautiful life. She was a strong and powerful woman, so I decided to change the image. Yeah, I love that so much. It's beautiful. Yeah. So in another quote from the article, Hernandez reflects on her relationship to art and on her subordinate position as a Chicana art student at the University of California, Berkeley in the 1970s. So I imagine there weren't a lot of Chicano students, period, but definitely not Chicana artists (laughs) during that time. There's so, not that many now. Like, yeah. I lived in Berkeley 10 years. There's not that many now. <laughs> yeah. So she says, quote, For me, this attempt at etching is a reaction to my frustration at the art department of UC Berkeley, seeing me solely as a Chicana, criticizing my work because it was not abstract. Third world people are expressing realism in their art and white people are going for the abstract. We are offended by a mere, oh, those ethnics attitudes and community for them. That's a dead word from the 60s. Though I had more re- my reasons for painting this picture, others went off on their feelings. For me, the symbol of the Chicana karate figure represents women becoming an active participant, breaking out of some traditional images, the colonial mentality, 
while maintaining her culture, informing, teaching, and learning from other, her people. Taking a militant stand on all fronts on behalf of La Raza, La Chicana at the forefront of the arts, in schools, as writers, whatever, and encompassing everything. So that's from an interview she did in 1976 about that piece. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. And again, it's it's that defiance. Like she's just like, nope, yeah. I'm not going to be treated in this way. This is a defiant symbol for me. That's mm-hmm. awesome. And it was so controversial. Like the, the image was super controversial because the virgin was no longer passive, right? Because she wasn't following patriarchal norms. People were, were pissed. And the fact that the Virgin was taking action was pe- something that people just didn't agree with. So, well, yeah, because women aren't supposed to. Exactly. She's supposed to be perfect on a pedestal and never moving. Yep. And and that's actually kind of fascinating, too, because if you look at all her imagery and all her photos of her, especially ones that we're going to share in social media, she's always either alone, floating on like some sort of cloud, mm-hmm. and looking perfect like looking like perfection and and so far removed both human and not human yeah you know above human and it's like wow but little has changed since then so in the 2001 in 2001 the cyber cyber arte tradition meets technology exhibition opened at the museum of international folk art in new mexico so Alma Lopez's piece on Our Lady was included. It was Lopez's interpretation of the Virgen. Even before the exhibit opened, uh, though there was a huge controversy. So wait, what does this say? Even before the exhibit opened, though there was a huge controversy when a brochure was sent out. There. Oh, okay, I see. Even before the exhibit opened, though, there was a huge controversy that kind of exploded when a brochure was sent out to announce the exhibition. Folks from the Catholic Church started calling them, telling them to remove the piece by Lopez because it was blasphemous. <laughs> I want to be called well, blasphemous, just putting that out there. I mean, it's like that Simpsons quote, God thinks peeing is blasphemous or something like that. <laughs> like, it's like, you can't even piss. <laughs> so what was fascinating was that even the members of the New Mexico legislator, legislature agreed with these outcries and pushed the museum to remove the piece. The exhibit continued with the piece, but the controversy was so big, there was there were so many debates about censorship and who owns the image of the Virgen. Does she belong to the church, to Catholics? Can artists reinterpret her image? And you know what? Good for that museum. Most museums will, ca- I'll tell you, will cave yeah. to controversy. And I'm I'm so happy this museum was like, nah, we're gonna we're gonna show it. I I think it was. I mean, it's a big risk, but at the same time, it's it's a museum. They're supposed to show art, and I, I just d- don't understand, but whatever. <laughs> it's it's definitely an argument within museums to to sh- either show this stuff or, like, do you want to piss off your donors? Yeah. You know, everyone's beholden to someone, and that's, yeah, that's hard. So a kudos to the museum to kind of unite and be like, no, we're going to show this piece no matter what. Yeah. So there's a great book called Our Lady of Controversy. Oh, another vegan. God damn it. No, no, no. They call they called the piece Our Lady and they jokingly add of controversy because of what happened. Oh, no, no, no. I'm, I'm kidding. Oh. I'm like another. <laughs> I'm such a dummy. I'm like, add another vegan, okay. I would worship this one, though. (laughs) This is like Our Lady of Cheese Myth. 
Our Lady of Chisme. Oh, that's a good one. Our Lady of Chisme. Like, I want to take, like, seconds of Mary's life. Like, (laughs) the tiniest of slices. Like, did she eat up, you know, a cake once? It's like, Our Lady Lady of the Cake. Like, (laughs) (laughs) that's what we should do. See, we need to do more research on Mary before the Virgin. (laughs) Yes. So, So, this particular book, Our Lady of Controversy, has 10 essays by scholars that talk about the controversy from different approaches. It's super cool. Check it out. So in this book, Alma Lopez writes, this work features performance artist Raquel Salinas as an assertive and strong virgen dressed in roses and cultural activist Raquel Gutierrez as a nude butterfly angel and was inspired by Sandra Cisneros' essay, Guadalupe, the Sex Goddess. Ugh. That's cool. Right? Doesn't that make you want, like, I want a copy of that print on my wall, all my walls. I want to see it. Like, I think we need to, I don't know if we can even share it on social media because it's, again, it's like an art piece from someone. So we'll, we'll see, but. We can share it. I mean, we just have to credit her. Yeah, that's true. Well, don't be saying that when we sued. We get sued. <laughs> <laughs> Our wow. lady of being sued. I know. Our lady of court shows. <laughs> Yes. So, Lopez also talks about other Chicana artists that have been threatened, received death threats, and things like that because of the way they reimagined the figure of La Virgen, including Yolanda Lopez and Esther Hernandez. I can't believe people, well, Our Lady of Death Threats. I can't believe people are just always, they're always sending death threats. Like, what's wrong with people? Like, poor Cree. It's just like, oh my gosh. Anyways. More to the point for our podcast, Alma Lopez talks about the importance of the image of La Virgen and why she is so important for feminists and Chicanas. She says, and here's, this is a very quote-heavy episode, but I very much enjoy all these quotes. So, Alma Lopez says, When I see Our Lady, as well as the works portraying La Virgen by many Chicana artists, I see an alternative voice expressing the m- multiplicities of our lived realities. I see myself living a tradition of Chicanas who, because of cultural and gender oppression, have asserted asserted our voice. I see Chicanas creating a deep and meaningful connection to this revolutionary cultural female image. I see Chicanas who understand faith. I love that quote so much. It's an excellent quote. Yeah. And I think that that's, I mean, that's kind of why we do this podcast. Like we're interested and fascinated in monstras and female monsters female figures because of that because they they have the ability to like create different realities create different ways of being women yeah instead of just being saints and held to this impossible standard you're allowed to buck that standard and and allowed Mm -hmm. to express yourself as a normal human being who just happens to have maybe a vagina yeah and I mean, even if you're not, that's, um, if you're not allowed to do it, you'll still do it because that's how awesome you are. Yeah, exactly. Do those karate moves, goddammit. Exactly. So that essentially is the end of our episode. We, there's so much that we did not cover in this very heavy, heavy topic. So we apologize if we didn't answer any curio- curious questions that you had in regards to this, but we will definitely do more episodes on Avihin. And I wanted to also touch on like, and you already kind of talked about this idea, but like, why did we choose to do an episode on La Virgen? And I wanted to kind of leave this question at the end because I'm hoping the actual episode answered this question. 
<laughs> you know, and is la virgen a monstra per se? I like that question. I'd like to hear what people have to say. Yeah, like we usually tackle monsters and scary things and folklore and that sort of thing. And la virgen isn't that, but she's also a monstra in her own way. In the way, especially at the end, where we had Chicana artists reimagine her and, and strip her of things that were hurtful. Yeah. I know there's this theorist, Julie Kristeva, Julie Kristeva, and she talks about what's horrific and what's abject. So, like monsters and stuff. And she says that anything, a horror is anything that crosses the boundaries. So, like, you know, between like clean and dirty, all that sort of stuff. And I think the Virgin kind of crosses these because she is a merging of so many different cultures right like not yes. only indigenous mexican and spanish but also arab right so it's like so many different conversations so many different cultures languages and that that makes her like this mixed is terrifying to some people and that's yeah. what makes her a monster to me and awesome no this is this is this is awesome and i think so too i i would have to agree and kind of piggyback on that sentiment you said it better than I did because I was just going to be like, I like her. She's cool. <laughs> well, I'm with you. I like her too. So that's <laughs> it for our episode today, I think, because otherwise we'll just go on talking about the Virgen. We talked a few, we used a few major sources uh, in case you're interested. We used the article Beyond Guadalupe by Brian R. Larkin. We used Theologies of Guadalupe by Timothy Matovina. And the images, the image of a miracle, the Virgin of Guadalupe in the context of the apparitions by Mina Garcia Sumali and the book Our Lady, edited by Alicia Gaspar de Alba and Alma Lopez. Great. Uh, yeah, and I had a ton more sources, but we did not use those. No. <laughs> I guess it was too much. <laughs> Do your own research if you want more sources. Come on now. <laughs> yes. So thank you everyone for listening. If you want to continue supporting us, please leave us a review. Just let us know what you think. And if you have any monsters, creatures, or legends you want us to cover, let us know. Also, subscribe. And that's it. Follow us on social media for more photos that we're going to be sharing a lot this this month and going into April about La Virgen and other kind of cool Virgen facts that we might not have been able to cover in this episode. So follow us on Twitter at Monsters Podcast or email us at monsterspodcast at gmail.com. We're also under Monsters Podcast on Instagram and on Facebook. So check us out and let us know what you think about this episode. So farewell, our lady of goodbyes. <laughs> Our Lady of dot dot dot. <laughs> That's what you need a well, shirt that says that. Our Lady of dot dot dot. Fill in the blank. Our lady of dot dot dot. Actually, that's not a bad t-shirt idea. <laughs> it's not a bad t-shirt idea. We have to just come out, come back, uh, come out with like a good Our Lady. Okay. All right. Well, stay safe, everyone, and bye. Bye. <laughs>